Hi, and welcome to the first ever episode of Should I Read Before I Die? I'm the host, Josh Anish. The goal of each episode is to help nice folks like you. You're busy. You have a lot going on. You like to read, but will probably only read around five more really big, important, or classic books before you die. The goal of this podcast is to tell you which ones to read and which ones are a waste of time. I'm just a dad living in Berkeley, a failed novelist who's much better at reading. My opinions are just those, but I do want to help. Today's show is entitled, Should I Read Carl of Knarsgaard's My Struggle Before I Die? And to help answer that question, we are joined by Chris Ingram. Chris is a cis professor of communications at the University of Utah, where he's an active teacher and researcher in the areas of rhetorical theory, digital media, and environmental communication. He tries to draw on these insights to think about the material, aesthetic, and effective practices that configure the environments we create and inhabit. He has two books out, Legofied, Building Blocks as Media, and one coming out next month called Gestures of Concern. Both are available on the Amazon. Full disclosure, Chris and I went to college together and remain great friends. We actually spoke on a panel together in Bergen in 2018 about the book, which we will discuss as well. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. I'm excited to be your first guest. For the for the listeners, let's try to let's try to reconstruct the general premise of the book. Although it's clearly just a long biography, I'll start by saying book one, for my money, is one of my favorite. Um, the drawing of his father um, and his father um, ultimately passing and kind of drinking himself to death is kind of the second half of book one, and it's amazingly written. It's one of my favorite sections in all of literature. Book four, I believe, is about kind of him being 20 or 25 teaching at a school up, up in the north. And then book six kind of ties it all up and has the infamous Hitler section. What else could you add about kind of like the, the plot? Yeah, so I think he chunks the book up into different periods of his life. So I've one of them is when he's in school, one of them when he, book three is when he's a kid. Uh, the first one is kind of about, as you mentioned, his father and his father's death. And book six is, I mean, it's massive, right? So it's got that 250 page essay on Hitler or whatever, but it's also uh, a lot about that stuff I was just talking about, how the response to the book. Uh, and there's that time when he was teaching up, at, that was a, one of the controversial things. Uh, in terms of the Norwegian reception, because he was there a young, there was a young girl, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to use the rape word, but that those accusations were thrown, thrown out. I mean, she was underage; he wasn't. She was uh, evidently consenting, uh, but underage. So a whole slew of problems with that whole situation, which he wrote about, and uh, I, apparently, I haven't read it. Also, wrote about it in a more overtly fictionalized way in one of his previous novels. In terms of just like a, a plot, an overview of the book, I would say some of the themes are uh, death and uh, the recognition of the passage of time. I mean, this is maybe one way where it connects to Proust. Right in the beginning, he talks about looking in, he sees his reflection or something and asks how, how did all these lines get carved into my face? I remember that. And you see pictures of him now and he's always his brooding, tall guy, usually with a cigarette in his mouth, but he's got these deep wrinkles. And, and so you kind of get this story of, of how these marks get, get made. And so there's this sort of world of ideas uh, that's happening, and, but it's always playing out in this very tangible, mundane, everyday sense. And so I, if somebody asked me what it's about, I don't think I have a good answer for it. Like there's not really a plot. I mean, as you said, it's like it's about his life. 
So tell us about Bergen. And then I think what, what I'm getting at about Norway is that these folks you wrote about for 4,000 pages are real. There were lawsuits, there were falling outs. And what did you learn over there in your time there? Yeah, so I, I had gone over kind of to answer, to answer this question that you're asking. I, I knew that I had read the book, uh, or at least at that point, the sixth volume hadn't been translated into English. Uh, and so I'd read all the books up to then and wanted to just get a feel for how the book was received locally. So I ended up just talking to a bunch of people and Bergen uh, was a good place to be because that's where he went to uni. Huh. Going. So like, were, like yeah. were people furious at him? Like how does a Norwegian take it? It was clearly a Norwegian event. Yeah, so the, the, the first thing to say is that I didn't come across anybody and I've talked, you know, with hundreds of people, almost all informally, uh, about Knausgaard in the book, and everybody had heard of it, and even if they didn't haven't read it, they had an opinion about it. A lot of them are proud of it too. It's like it's it's their own native native son. It's like the most important book in a century for them. That's right. So, so that right away uh, was really eye opening for me. I mean, it's hard to imagine a single book in America that everyone that would have on the tip of their tongues, just no, have an opinion about. I mean, maybe like Harry Potter or something. Uh, I don't even know, like the corrections, but not as much, right? Not nearly as much. Certainly not. I mean, Harry Potter is a whole different phenomenon, not in the, in the genre that's sort of self-consciously contributing to a tradition of literature that thinks of itself as important. Uh, (laughs) And, and so, he uh, he managed to get that foothold there. And I think part of the reason, as you alluded to, is that he, without naming names necessarily, uh, and sometimes naming names, but he sort of told stories about real people that, that others in Norway would know. And it's a small enough community that they raised a stink. And other people, you sort of maybe would have a friend of a friend who knew somebody in the book. Right. And there was like, there were ex-wives, right? And Yeah. So, so he went through a divorce during the course of the book. I mean, one unique part of the book is that because it's so long and was released over several volumes, uh, the subsequent volumes were able to be about the blowback that the first volumes. Yeah. So uh, it also has this whole recursive phenomenon going on where you're, you're going along with the story of the book and then you're recognizing that this book isn't just made up, this is having an actual impact in the world. So there's this sort of realm of ideas and then there's the material realm of actual life. And the book manages to converge those in a really neat way. Yeah, that can happen in reality TV sometimes where like by the 10th episode, they know that people are paying attention and become kind of meta, but I can't remember a time where I can't think of one where it happens in a book. But the reason why I love the book is you pick out things that are meaningful for you. I remember like one section he was talking, he was mad at his wife. She wanted him to make coffee and to sweep. And then he said, for some reason, I thought she was thwarting me. And that word thwarting. <laughs> and he's like, then I thought like, what am I really doing? I'm not, I'm unemployed. I'm just writing. Like, how is she thwarting me? And like, <laughs> I've had that own thought in my own life. And then there's another section, like I forget, maybe in book five, where he's talking about kind of like looking across the playground. He's putting himself in his own mind when he was 12. And he says something else to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, at the time when I was 12, I thought I was living this objective life, just kind of taking in all the scenes. 
but I wish then I, what I know now that I was living my life, that <laughs> you should be subjective and solipsistic because that's just kind of how it goes throughout your entire life. You are the narrator of your own situation. And I wish I knew that then. So the reason why I love it is kind of like picking out these kind of tropes or themes across the 4,000 pages that really resonate deeply with me. Yeah, and I mean, to the question of whether you should read this book, I, I, am, I can confidently guarantee that any reader on this planet could pick up this book, read it through, and find something that touches them and they can relate to. But that's partly a product of it being such a long book. <laughs> that's also going to mean a good portion of the book is likely to have nothing that you're really interested in uh, for, for a good number of readers. That wasn't the case for me because I was so drawn on by his capturing of those moments like you, you talked about in every, in, in, at the playground. Uh, just this little fleeting thought that in the course of an actually lived life you forget about and it's gone, but somehow he, he makes it seem monumental in a way that, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Like, there's no, like an exclamation mark isn't the right punctuation mark for it. It's, it's, it's like subdued and monumental at the same time. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's really well put. The elephant in the room for some folks is this, this notion of this Hitler section in book six. And obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it, it's, the book is called Mein Kampf, and that is the, the name of the book that Hitler wrote, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Hitler is touched on throughout the six volumes. And then in, in book six, he says that he has this 250-page section about Hitler. I have a hot take on this section because people have all kinds of theories about what it is and why he did that. Um, and the book's kind of talking about Hitler in like a young, when he was like 24 with a friend, right? He used to walk around lecturing his friend. It's about a snapshot in Hitler's life, but it's long. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's just, it's just not that good. I feel like maybe he had an idea for it and how it would like palimpsest into the rest of the story and how everyone's got an autobiography, everyone's got a biography, you can like draw parallels, even Hitler. But I just think a lot of the hand-wringing, and I say this as a Jewish person, like, is kind of like misplaced, and he just put it in there, and it is what it is, and we should just move on. What do you, how does that strike you? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a legitimate way to read, this, read it. Uh, one compelling argument that I've seen uh, made is that, uh, each of the each of the books, each of the individual books, uh, is doing a particular thing that different novels over time have done. So, one is like the Bildungsroman. Uh, one is uh, an artist's awakening. One is uh, a school school days story. One is a relationship with his father, whatever, first love. These sorts of things, common tropes throughout all Western literature. Uh, and another one would be the essay. And I think one way to read book six, certainly more than the other ones, is as an essay. He's got that Hitler section. He's got this stuff on Paul Salon's poetry. He's also, I think, I don't know, I don't remember him. He must be, but I don't remember if he's self-consciously acknowledging Tolstoy's, his debt to Tolstoy in that book. Tolstoy, I mean, War and Peace, it's like every other chapter is an essay, basically. Uh, so uh, I think he's doing something of that there. Um, That's a good, I feel like Kendrick Lamar does that. I feel like he's like, you want, you want poetry? Here's a Pulitzer Prize. You want me to be hard? Here is some hard ass shit, you know? Like I can <laughs> do any genre you want. I'm so talented that I'm like a Swiss army knife of the genre. 
So readers, if you want a reason to read this book, it's the most literary version of Kendrick Lamar you'll ever find. Kendrick <laughs> Lamar's got more Pulitzer Prizes than uh, Carl Loeb does, so who knows? That's true. But like, so, so if, if a reader is interested in the intrigue of this book, let me just list off some things that this book has inspired. So hundreds of book reviews. It's been translated into over 20 languages. The book's been burned publicly, hmm. it's inspired Lego builds. There have been stage dramas of the book. He's had death threats, lawsuits, millions of copies sold. He's been on radio shows. He's had paintings done of him. He's been asked to curate art exhibits. He's had tons of international awards, been invited to every little talk you can, and big talk you can imagine. And he's been named sexiest dad alive by The Guardian. Yeah, and I think I think the reason why again is this: it's four thousand pages, and for like two hundred of them, you can really like have thoughts about your own life, reflections about how his life and the Venn diagram touches your life, and it really kind of have some self understanding and like remembrances of things past as as you read it. Yeah, yeah, nicely put. I the Hitler thing, I think has to be part of the book, the Hitler essay. To go back to that question because he titles it, like you said, Mein Kampf. And so it's, as the elephant in the room, he's got to address it and he does at the end. But the way he does, I think gives us signals a little bit about what he's trying to get at. And I don't think it's the political thing. I think it's it, that whole section, what's it called, the name and the number or something, is about um, Hitler struggling as an artist. And, and that's essentially what Knausgaard's struggle is. But his, Knausgaard's struggle is to maintain the integrity of an artist, specifically a writer as he knows it, while also trying to hold together this sort of bourgeois liberal capitalist ideal of this perfect nuclear family. <laughs> so he's changing diapers and, and putting on coffee and all that and just living an ordinary life. Eating a lot of sausages. He eats a lot of sausages in these books. <laughs> Yeah, I had read after book one came out in the English translation that one of the reasons it was called Mein Kampf was to get Norway's attention because he was going to criticize their capitulation uh, to the Nazis in the 40s and World War II, kind of as a, because they've kind of swept it under the rug a little bit, but that didn't really come in. Um, maybe that reviewer was wrong, but I, I had that in my head while I was reading it. Interesting. I hadn't heard that. Uh, one thing I'd heard was that, right, I've noticed is that there's been a lot of well there's tons of stuff written about the book so there's just a ton a ton, I mean, thousands of pages have been written about it a lot of people are have speculated about the flesh and blood carlos political leanings because he says some things that are quasi anti-immigration he's talks about uh the importance of like recognizing cultural difference and supporting homogenization of cultures. And, uh, and particularly because the book invites a reading where the, the narrator you get on the page is, we're led to believe that's the same version as the real person. Right, right. Uh, people speculate that he, this is a far right book. And he, he's hesitated to say, I did read one interview with him where they asked him that question. He said, I don't want to talk about it, but all right, I'm just a, like a regular uh, socialist Democrat, nothing interesting about it. I'm very pro-environment and 
I don't like to talk about it because we live in a hostile political culture where the moment someone knows your affiliation and your leanings, they pigeonhole you and then you can't actually have a real conversation. For me, I wasn't reading it for the politics. I don't think he was writing it for any politics either. I think that's where the Hitler thing was kind of a misdirection. Maybe, as you said, it was a strategically waged move to generate publicity, in which case it was really successful. Do you remember that scene in book three where he's in, like this is the book where he's a kid, boyhood or something I think it's translated as. And he, he's in the woods and he's gotta go to the bathroom. And, and he goes, he, he describes himself pooping in the woods. Yeah. And you just sort of know that it's gonna, uh, he's gonna go into all the detail and uh and he does and he describes the poop and all this stuff like that's to me that's an illustrative example to give readers the idea of the kind of thing they're getting into uh it's it seems banal and maybe gross from the standpoint of a certain set of expectations about what so-called literary fiction entails but in that chapter that book i guess he's writing from the standpoint of like an eight-year-old (laughs) <laughs> and and pooping in the woods for an eight-year-old for the first time is kind of a moment. Yep. And, and you're interested in poop. And so it's not like, there, but he gives that level of detail about every different phase of his life. And that's what drives the book forward to me is, is calling to mind the fascination and wonder of something new, even, even though it gets as it becomes no longer new, it becomes mundane and stupid. He's able to sort of resurrect the newness of things. Right. I think he says at one point, you can't remember your entire life. You can't remember every second. Sometimes you want to, right? So there is some value in writing 4,000 pages about it because you can rediscover things with a childlike imagination and pooping. Or there's one great part. Remember when he's like, him and his buddies are playing music in the parking lot of a mall? Mm-hmm. And the owner of the mall comes out and was like, no, you guys suck. Get, stop. And then they <laughs> convince him to keep on going. And he takes 100 steps. They start playing. And he comes back and he, he like makes them leave. Um, just kind of, again, like just, just like kind of piecing together, you know, connecting the dots of your own life. I feel like folks of all stripes will appreciate. I have a question for you. Sure. Do you think that it's the kind of book that you need to read from start to finish? or that it's the kind of book where you can just pick up one volume and kind of get the gist of it and that's that? Or do you think it really rewards uh, front to back, volume one through volume six reading? Great question. My personal bias is to just read things the way the author intended. I think with Proust, people will say there's no plot. I wholeheartedly disagree. Proust has a very thorough plot. The last book is the best book. It's got, it ties it up. It's just a story like Star Wars, right? There's, it's there. Um, this book, since it is uh, uh, asynchronous, there is, you know, one could pick up book four and, and enjoy it. I will say book, if you are looking to save time, book one is my favorite. Um, you can, the, the, you know, his father, I think I said this when we met, um, is one of my favorite characters in all literature. And the last 200 pages is all about his demise with his own mother, with, his, with Carl's grandmother watching. So spoiler alert, uh, Carl O's father kind of drinks himself to death while his own mother is there watching him. And it's just sad because Carl kind of pieces it together. It's just a fabulous book. So again, if you were looking to save time, 
uh, book one would be a safe bet. To answer your question, I think uh, I would read it one through six. But I also have a bias. But what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I'm just thinking in terms of the stakes of, of should you read it? To ask someone to read or to advise someone to read a 3,800 word or page, not word, page book uh, is like asking them to read six books or, or eight books because the books right. are actually long. Uh, so uh, it almost has to have like 8x the payoff that of reading one one book. It's interesting though, like the big great books, which I'm hoping to, to, to talk, talk about in this series, they often tend to be long, right? It's almost like the author yeah. is like, well, this is my opus. It's going to be big, like Infinite yeah. Zest or Gravity's Rainbow. I think it rewards uh, front to back reading for sure. Yeah, and it does have something of a Stockholm Syndrome. Sometimes you're reading it and you're like, this is boring, but it's kind of, even reading the boring parts can be rewarding. It's kind of like, again, since it's easy to read, um, it can be somewhat calming um, and meditative, even if you're like spacing out, thinking about your, your grocery list while you're reading it, it's still, still helpful. Yeah, that reminds me of one of the things that I, I'm taken by. Some people have written about uh, how this is, in many ways, the most exemplary novel of the digital age. Massive, right? So you look at digital culture and it's just this yard sale of information everywhere. Posting a photo when you have a hot dog or trim the, your beard, everything. And, uh, and because it's so big, it has that logorrheic aspect where you almost, this gets to what you were saying with the, you get bored it's kind of like scrolling through like a feed on, on social media. You just keep going and keep going and there's no end point. Yeah. Like when he's, I agree when he's like talking about pooping in the woods, when he's eight, it's, he's not saying I pooped in the woods when I was eight. Cause I'm so awesome. It makes me, when I watch my son poop in the woods, who's eight, <laughs> like think about how interesting it is for him to do that. Or like, is it wrong? Or, do I, you know, do I need to wipe or like, am I going to get caught? Like those are the thoughts in eight year old's mind. He's able to bring that into my daily thinking. And I'm thankful for that. James Wood's take on that scene is, is that he's not afraid to, it's not just that he's not afraid to show us these details that most literary writers aren't are afraid to do. It's that uh, he's totally comfortable writing in a non-literary style. So I think in that passage, he's like, ooh, ooh. Ah, oh. <laughs> I, heard him read it, I heard him read it out loud one time on a podcast. I heard him grunting in real life. So, so it's that sort of writing that I think, you know, again, it's scare quotes, like high art literature has for a long time said, no, we don't do that. But that would be very at home in the triviality of digital culture. And he's just trying to say, look, cliches are cliches for a reason. And let me just, be as bare as I can without telling my story. Yeah, I think one of his books, Don DeLillo, is like he's dying, the narrator is dying to see someone pee on a sitcom. Just to <laughs> even hear it. Because that's, because that's what happens in real life, right? Your mom comes yeah. to the you hear her pee, even her door's closed, right? Like, how come that can't be on a sitcom? Sitcoms are stupid, right? So, Christopher, I ask you the question. Should, who is busy, who has a lot of things going on, and is probably only going to read 10 classics the rest of her life, should they read at least part or all of my struggle? Yes, definitively. I, I would say, as you said, start with book one. If it draws you in, I think you will inevitably be drawn further. If it's something that you disidentify as not for you, 
then that, you know, there's plenty of other stuff to read. On the other hand, it rewards the time and it, it just has so many wonderful moments in it for you. I agree. I'm saying yes also. And I'm not going to say yes to everything. For example, I just read Don Quixote during the lockdown. People can skip that one. It's great. I get it. I get the windmills. It was awesome. But I wish I had those, those, that six weeks back. Um, this book, I'm saying yes to. It makes me uh, regain lost time in my own life. It makes me think about myself uh, and my experiences in a kind of new way. Yeah, and back to my Kendrick Lamar parallel with this book is that when you listen to Kendrick Lamar, you can talk about, you can understand all the genres that he's, that he's steeped in and he's playing with, or you can just be at the club and you can hear a song and like it and start dancing. I think it's the same with this book, whereas, yeah, you can pay attention, you can pay know he's playing with Proust or playing with Paul Salon or, or Hitler or any other genre, or you could just like pick it up during Christmas for 10 days, your great uncle doesn't like to read and just like, and love it. So I do, that's one of the reasons why I love the book. Yeah, I think it, this book just has a little bit of everything. And that alone makes it a joy. I mean, it's, it's, if you want to read it for this sort of high art thing, you can. If you want to just have fun with it and get lost in it, you can do that too. All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate you being my first guest on the podcast. Um, keep an eye out for Chris's book, Gestures of Concern, which uh, will, be, will be on Amazon. It'll, it's on Amazon now for pre-order. Um, yeah. Thanks again, buddy. Stay safe. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Stay in touch. Bye.